We continue, continue our study through Judges, and here's our, our main question today that we're looking to answer. Do you use God-given success to substitute yourself for God? Do you use God-given success to substitute yourself for God? I want you to write that at the top of your page. If you're taking notes, which I think is a great practice, another great practice in, in note-taking is to look back over your notes this week, uh, to study them, to look back over the scriptures to examine and to make sure that what you have heard today is indeed the truth according to the Word of God. And let me just say, I'm so glad that you are here. Uh, You could have woke up this morning and you could have looked at the Weather Channel and gone, man, it's going to be nasty outside. But instead, you have come here and we are here to worship as we have sung to the Lord. And so I am thankful uh, with you that we are here today in worship. If you were to be exiled to an island all by yourself and you could take one item, what would it be? And this island does not have Wi-Fi. It does not have satellite service. One item, what would it be? You've heard this question, I'm sure, before. Maybe it's been asked in a smaller group. Maybe somebody came to you and asked this one-on-one. But if you were to be exiled to an island all by yourself and you could have one item and only one item and without trying to be creative at how you could tack on some other items, just one item, what would it be? And I would imagine that since we are here in a local church, what our number one answer would be, would be what? The Bible. We would say, yes, I would take the Bible. And that, by the way, is a a wonderful answer. Uh, You get an A plus for that. But think about this. Does that answer reflect your daily life? Does it reflect your need for God's word every day? By not being exiled on an island all by yourself, and, and, and some of us, were all, if we're honest, we would say it would take that for me to get into the Bible and just to read the Bible. But does your life truly reflect your great need for God's word? that you need it every day to sustain, to guide, to encourage, to challenge, to keep your eyes on Jesus. So yes, it is a great answer, but does that answer match your daily life? And as we look to Judges chapter eight, we look to a man named Gideon, whom we've already looked at in chapter seven. But as we turn to page to chapter eight, we notice something is happening with Gideon. He is He is beginning to drift from the word of God. He's beginning to drift from the promises of God and he's replaced God with himself. After God has given him great success, military success, we begin to see the shift. And I want you to look closely and as we study this today, there, as you look deep into the scriptures, may you examine your own life and go, have I begun to shift? As God has brought success into my life, most especially my salvation in Christ, have I exchanged God for myself and put myself on the throne of worship? And so I'm going to summarize a good bit of this. And so you follow along with me. We're in Judges chapter 8. If you have a pew Bible, uh, you can turn to page 207 and you'll be right there with us. And so Gideon has run in with the men of Ephraim, 
And they're quite upset with Gideon because he did not ask them to come along in battle. Just a side note, it's easy to get upset. It's easy to act big and bad after the battle has already been won. And here we see Ephraim. They're, they're upset. Why didn't you ask us to go along? We could have gone into battle with you. But aside from that and them being upset, God did not want them to go. It was not his plan to send the Ephraimites with Gideon to go and defeat the Midianites. He left them at home for this very reason, because they're upset because they were not asked to go into battle. They would have made it about themselves had they won this war. They would have pointed to themselves, look at our great number, look at our great might. We have become greater than all the other people. No, God had a different plan. In fact, he took an army of 32,000 and he whittled them down to 300 men. And he said, these are the men I'm going to use. I'm going to put them in an impossible situation. But, but why? Why 300? Was it because they could act like Navy SEALs and they could be more stealth-like and easily maneuver around the camp? Is that why he whittled it down to 300? Maybe they would be a more strategic army. No, he did it because in many times God put his people in impossible situations and made it possible. That's why he wanted there to be no doubt that when he whittled this army of 32,000 down to 300, this was God's victory. This was God's work. And if the Ephraimites would have come along, they would have received the boast. And so they were asked to stay at home because it wasn't for their own glory. It was for God's glory. And as we have seen, God has placed his people in impossible situations and made the daunting task possible. And we see our salvation as such as this. It's impossible for us to be saved of any work that we could do for ourselves, of any intellect that we could have, of any strivings, any works that we could do. It's impossible. It's a daunting task for us to be forgiven of our sins, and it could only happen through Jesus. He made the impossible possible. And so... With this, Gideon was to trust in God's commands. He was to trust in his word. Daily, it was God's word, God's command that would guide Gideon and the army to success. This was the victory. This was the remedy, all on the promises of God. And so once Gideon flatters the men of Ephraim by acknowledging that if they had come along, they would have easily won, for they were one of the strongest tribes among the Israelites, economically and militarily. And the men said, ah, oh, you're right. You know, surely if we would have come with you, it just would have been too easy. It's a good thing you, you left us at home. Uh, congratulations. Uh, you flattered us. You may go. And so Gideon takes them in and they leave in peace. So no battle breaks out among the tribes, but he continues forward in verses four through seven and Gideon and the 300 continue forward as they crossed over the Jordan. And in verse four, it says they were exhausted yet pursuing, exhausted yet pursuing. They could keep going. They could keep persevering as long as they trusted in the promises of God. And they came to the men of Succoth and asked them for bread, explaining that they were exhausted and hungry in their pursuit of Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. 
Man, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're tired. Will you just give us something to eat? And the officials of Succoth spoke and said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? I mean, you haven't defeated them yet. So if we help you and then yet you go and lose, then they're going to come kill us for helping you. And so Gideon gets upset and said, okay, when I get back, I'm going to send you out into the wilderness and I'm going to ask you to gather some switches. And if you bring those switches back and they're too small, I'll go get a bigger one myself. He says, I'll take briars, I'll take thorns, and I'll flail your flesh. You remember this. I'll see you again. All of a sudden, we see the tone of Gideon starting to change. I mean, these men doubted him. They doubted what he could do. Had Gideon already forgotten his doubts when he had to lay out the fleece? Are you sure, God? God, is this you? I just want to make sure. So then in verse 7, Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And then in verses 8 and 9, And from there he went to Penuel and asked them for some bread. And the men of Penuel had the same response as the men of Succoth. Again, Gideon gets upset and says, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. And so now there remained with Zeba and Zalmunna about 15,000 men. Have in mind, they started with 135,000. These Midianites who seemed like locusts had dwindled drastically in number. Needless to say, although still heavily outnumbering Gideon and the 300, the Midianites are hanging on by a thread. So they hunger down in Karkor, where they felt safe. The enemy felt safe in this camp. But Gideon got to them and threw all the army into a panic, and he captured Zeba and Zalmunna. That'll show those tribes whose boss... I have now captured them. But he set them into a panic. They were panicked, which means they were surprised, which means caused to tremble. So this mighty army of 135,000 dwindled down to just 15,000. They're now trembling. They're now fearful. They are panicked. But if you look back in chapter 7, verse 3, when Gideon has the 32,000 around him, and he says, okay, how many of you are panicked? How many of you are scared? How many of you are trembling right now? And 20,000 put up their arms and said, hey, me, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I want to go back home. I do not want to fight today. Not going to happen. So 20,000 of them left. Do you see the picture here? He had the army that was trembling. He had the army that was panicked. They were the ones who were afraid, but they trusted in the commands of God and see how the roles reversed. Now this powerful army of locusts, of 135,000 being whittled down to 15,000, now they're the ones who are panicked. This is the work of God. He takes our fear and turns it into a great faith. And he brings to nothing the things that we once feared. Do you believe that? That he can take your fears and he can turn it into great faith. The things that you fear today, he can bring to nothing tomorrow. Do you really believe this? 
do you trust these promises of God? And yet this is happening among the people. The Midianites, they tremble in fear. And so the kings are captured in verses 14 through 17. After this great victory, Gideon returns near Succoth and captured a young man. And he proceeded to interrogate him and was able to get out of him the names of 77 officials and elders of Succoth. And he, when he returned to Succoth, he reminded them of their taunting. And he took the elders of the city and gave them a severe switching, just like he told them. He took the briars, he took the thorns, he put it together as a whip, and he flailed their flesh. And then he went to Penuel, and he broke down their tower, and he killed the men. These are of the tribes of Israel. These are the people of God. And yet now Gideon is highly upset and he's taken action against them. One thing we don't see in this passage is him calling upon the Lord. How shall I treat these men? What shall I do with their little faith? Had Gideon quickly forgotten of his little faith that we read of just in chapter 7? The boldness of Gideon continued to grow, but was this healthy? Was Gideon following the Lord or was he following his own inclinations? It appears that Gideon was frustrated because these men would not give him the glory he was due. Instead of saying, you're right, men, the battle does seem too daunting. It seems impossible. But put your faith and trust in the Lord. I, too, was a man who had little faith. And I had to lay out a fleece one day and, and ask that it be wet. And then the next day I had to ask that it would be dry when everything else on the ground was wet. I too was in the wine press beating out the wheat because I was trembling. I was afraid. I get it, men. I get why you would doubt me. I'm just a man. But I believe in God, and God has brought the victory. But that's not what happens. He gets upset because he's the man. And they doubt him. How dare you doubt my success? You see, it's very subtle in this passage, but I believe it's right here before us. He's upset because they doubt him, not God. So how can success get to our head, leading us to become easily offended or bothered by others? How has this happened in our lives? Maybe it's at home and we're short-tempered when somebody inconveniences us. How dare you not put your shoes up where they belong? I tripped over those. You cause me to stumble. Don't you know your shoes go in your room? And all of a sudden, boom, we're set off as if we were never the kids who left our shoes right in the middle of the floor. The wife does something that we don't like, and all of a sudden, we scold. We talk down to. I would never do this to you. How could you do this? How could you be so lazy? How could you be so inconsiderate? And all of a sudden, we're blasting one another. Why? Because we've offended God? No, because we've been offended. Because we're successful. And when we come home, we should be treated as such. And so it leads us to have little patience with one another. That's just one way. I mean, maybe it's arrogance. 
Maybe you walk into a small group Bible study and you have all the answers and you can't wait for everybody to hear your right answers because you've had success. You've studied, you've gained, now everybody needs to appreciate what you know. Or it's just easily frustrated when others do not excel as quickly around you. They don't pick up the pace. They don't get it as easily as you do. Yesterday, I took my boys fishing. We had a great time. We had some red wigglers. Come on, boys, be a man. Grab that worm. And they took the worm and they put it on the hook. Actually, I'm the one who did that every time. And they would cast out. And then Paxton has been watching his daddy bass fish, and so he just can't keep his bobber out there. No, he's got to pull up, and he's got to reel down. He's got to pull up, and he's jerking. I'm like, Paxton, you got to fish. And then I realize it's him doing the whole action. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, man, he has tangled line, and his brother has tangled line, and then both their lines are tangled together, and then they're sword fighting with their fishing rods. I had it, I had it pictured perfect, man. We were going to get their little chairs out. We were going to sit, we we're going to cast out and put them on a place where we could catch little bluegills. It was going to, it's going to be wonderful. And it just wasn't playing out. And I was starting to get frustrated. Leave your cork out there. Quit r- reeling in your cork. You reeled in your cork again. Did I not tell you to leave it out there? And all of a sudden I'm like, if anybody walks by, they're going to be like, who is this jerk of a dad? I'm the pastor at Perimeter Road Baptist Church. That's who I am. <laughs> But it happens in the smallest of ways. I mean, well, what a beautiful opportunity. And all of a sudden, here I am ruining it. And, and we did. We had a great time. I don't want to paint a picture that it was all gloom. I mean, they, they want to go back this afternoon. I'm like, well, the weather. I don't know. But we get inconvenienced. We have success. And all of a sudden, here I am as a dad forgetting my struggles when it came to putting on a basic bobber on a line and throwing it out and being patient. We do this in all areas of life. And for Gideon, he gets impatient with these people. How could you doubt me? Have you not seen what we've done? 300. We've taken down 135,000. And now I am justified to not only beat you with a switch, but I can kill you for doubting me. Gideon has changed. The success is getting to his head in the same way that success can get into our heads. And he continues to make it a personal battle. Verse 18, then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Pause. Wow. If he had just saved his brothers, his brothers, he would not have killed them. You see, he would have shown more mercy to his enemy than his brothers. He there killed his brothers. He killed the tribes for disagreeing with him. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. You see, it became a family matter now. It became internal, and Gideon then decided to kill the kings. His success continues to get to him, and his crafty nature starts to override his sound judgment from the Lord. 
That's what's taking place. He took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. And if we were watching this as if it were a movie, all of a sudden the music would change and it would get real serious. And then the camera would zoom in on these ornaments because we know he probably should not be taking these. Can't be anything good that's going to be happening by taking these, these ornaments off of the camels. What need does he have for those anyway? You see, when we take credit for our success, it breeds a nature of unruliness. Of unruliness. You say, me? No, I'm not unruly. But when you take the credit for the success that's been given to you, it creates an unruliness within you, out of control. We act like... No one can stop us. We are the king. It is our world. Everybody submits to our success. This is how we can live our lives. If we take what God has given to us and we take credit for it, we become unruly. Timothy Keller says the judge is supposed to turn people from unfaithfulness to the true God. That's what a judge is supposed to do. That's what Gideon was. Instead, Gideon leads them into it. He leads them into unfaithfulness. Question for you. Do you lead people from unfaithfulness to the one true God? Is that how you spend your days? Is that how you spend your energy? Leading people to the one true God. From unfaithfulness to the one true God. Or do you just lead people into unfaithfulness? Think about the people you work with. What would they say about you? Would they say that you're one who would lead people from unfaithfulness to God, or you'd say, no, they, they contribute to the unfaithfulness in the conversations and their actions. Yeah, they're, they're pretty unfaithful. What would your family say? Would they say that you helped to lead from unfaithfulness to the one true God, or they said, no, he contributes to the unfaithfulness again and again and again. If you do an honest evaluation of yourself, are you leading people from unfaithfulness to the one true God? Or are you leading them to unfaithfulness? This is a good question for us to carry into the week. In fact, I hope you would take it with you in that you would do an honest assessment of your life based on this passage. That you would examine the different areas of your life, different groups and communities that you are a part of. Because we can act differently in one group compared to another group. And it all depends on success. It depends on how we view ourselves in the midst of that group. Maybe we're intimidated in this group, but everybody else feels intimidated by us in this group, and we act differently in one group than the other. Maybe that could be work and home. Maybe that could be home and work, whatever it could be. Maybe it's just in your neighborhood. Maybe it's where you go and play. Examine your life. Are you leading people from unfaithfulness to the one true God? Because now Gideon is just leading people into plain unfaithfulness. Verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And it's at this point in our reading that we just want to say, stop right there. Stop. Don't say another thing. Just, just believe what you said. Just do what you say. 
You say you be on an island all by yourself and you take the Bible because you want to abide by God's word and hold to it and everything you do. Amen. Do it. But don't just say it. But then our lives reflect something different. And here Gideon is saying, I'm not your king. My son's not going to be your king. Grandson's not going to be your king. The Lord is our king. True statement. To God be the glory for this truth. Gideon says the right thing. And we would hope that at that point, Israel would break out in worship as they are reminded that, yes, he whittled us down to 300 and we destroyed an army of over 135,000 men. But see, the downfall had already begun. And at this point, with all of his great success, this only appears to be lip service. Gideon acknowledged that God with his lips, but went on about his own lifestyle. The word of God, his promises had delivered Gideon thus far. But at this point, Gideon then decided thus far and no more, God. Thus far and no more. Is that where you are today? God has led you through many areas in life, but you have gotten to a point where you say, thus far, God, and no more. I don't need your help, God. If I get in trouble, I'll call back on you. Thank you for all the success. Thank you for all the provision. But what I'm going through right now, I just got to tell you, hey, you stop right here. I've got it. Let me keep going. This was Gideon. Do the words that spring forth from your lips match the actions of your everyday life? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to go and practice it. James 1, through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so now Gideon is just hearing, but he's not doing. And he has forgotten the man who was in the wine press. He has forgotten the man who laid down the fleece and said, I just want to be sure of your promises, God. I need you. And he doesn't pause right here and say, God, these people want me to be king. Help, intercede. I know the Lord is to be king, but I am so tempted right now to just act like a king anyway. Does that sound familiar? We know things we shouldn't do, and we should submit them to God, but we say, God, thus far, no more. I'll handle it. And it's at this point where we see a great change in Gideon and there's never a return. Verse 24, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. I mean, this comes on the heels after he said, the Lord is our king. But if I may make a request of you, men, every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Now we pause right here and we know that if we have gone through Exodus, this isn't good. This is not good. Oh no. We've seen this played out before. He's going to gather these earrings of gold. He's going to melt them down. 
and it can't be good. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 25, and they answered, we will willingly give them. Oh yeah, man. Oh yeah, we'll give them. What are you going to do? What are you going to create for us? What can we put our eyes on? What new thing can we now trust in? We've had all these great victories. We're an accomplished people. There's got to be more out there. Oh, create it, Gideon. You go here. Here are my earrings, man. These are special, but you know what? I'm going to put them down right here. Melt them down. Make something great. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. And since we all measure things by shekels, we know exactly how much that weighed, right? I'd be about 35 to 75 pounds in weight. And besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. See, we knew those things would come back. There was a purpose of him taking them, not for the glory of God, but for the glory of himself. Verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in a city in Ophrah and all Israel whored after it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon so to give you a, a little bit of an explanation how they could whore after this ephod, which is um, kind of like a breastplate, you would put it on, a priest would wear this, and we don't know if Gideon put it on and wore it around town, strutting his stuff, saying, I'm not a king, but I can act like a priest, um, or, or whether they just hung it up on maybe an idol or a statue. We're not told those details, but we know that this thing is not good because they stumble over it and they whore after it. You say, how dare you use such language? That's the Bible language here. And that's what they did. How can somebody go after an adulteress? What, what does that look like to, to whore after something? It means to forget everything else as if it does not matter. Your only affection is for this current pleasure. You're so nearsighted, you can't see what's beyond. We, we don't care. We do not even care. All we care about is being pleased in the moment. Just fulfill my desires. And this ephod becomes that for these people. It's all they want. They want to embrace it. And God sees this as adultery. I'm the one who delivered you. You made this ephod and now you worship this. This is why I whittled you down. But even in whittling you down to 300, it appears it has not worked. Why? Because we need a better judge than Gideon. And we do have a better judge. His name is Jesus. And he came all the way down and he lived among us and he lived a perfect life. There, there was no type of behavior like this right here out of Jesus. He did everything to fulfill the Father's commands. He did it to perfection. So the many days when we do not do it to perfection, where we struggle, where we take the God-given success and we make it about us, we can still trust in what Jesus did. He is the good judge. And so we see this judge fall short. And it reminds us in, in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? These are scary passages in the Bible. Let me just go ahead and reference that. This is a scary passage. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Wow. 
That can be scary, especially if you're wondering if you're still saved or not. And you're going, whoa, I don't, I don't know. I say, Lord, Lord. But what if I stand before a holy God one day and I say, you are Lord. And he says, that's not enough. That's not enough. Didn't you notice your behavior? That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father is to look to Jesus and trust in his righteousness. Trust fully in Christ, not in yourselves. And so when you say, Lord, Lord, you are saying Christ is king. Christ is king. Here Gideon is saying, I'm king. No, the Lord is king, Gideon. There are many days when we say, I am king. I rule this house. I rule this business. I rule this community. I rule this neighborhood. I rule this school. Whatever it may be. And yet we have to remind ourselves that it's Christ who is king. It's for those who say one thing but do another. That which is already set on your heart. And so let me explain it like this. When when I was in eighth grade, and, and I really, I wrestled over whether to share this or not, but I'm going to because I, I think it just relates. But when I was in eighth grade, I was sitting at my desk and we were in the middle of an English test and I did not know the answer. And I needed to pass this test. And I knew that the teacher, Miss Thomas, she was sweet, but she was stern. She was sitting at her desk and she had the answer key right in front of her. And I had determined in my heart that what I was going to do is I was going to ask her a question that I did not care to know the answer to. But it was just to bluff so that I could look down at the answer key. I know, right? Sick, man. Eighth grade, I was nasty in sin, right? To, to look down at the answer key, get my answer, and go back to my desk and write it in as quick as possible. As soon as I stepped out from my desk, I went to the teacher and I said, Mrs. Thomas, and I asked her a question to this day. I don't even know what that question was. I did not care, but my eyes drifted down to the answer key. Somewhere along there, I found my answer. She answered my question that I asked her that I didn't care about. I said, thank you so much. I went back down to my desk, sat down, filled in the answer, success. About 15 seconds later, Ms. Thomas stands up from her desk and she says, class, I just want you to know that if you have a question, you can raise your hand from your seat and ask it from there. And she looked right at me and she said, do I make myself clear? Yes, ma'am, Crystal. What was going on in my heart was that I had a crafty nature and I only cared about one thing and that was my grade my test. I didn't care what she thought. I didn't care what anybody else thought. I didn't care that all those other students had to answer it correctly without going and cheating. I didn't care about that. All I cared about was myself. When did the sin start taking place? When I stepped out of my desk and I began to walk, that's when I knew that whatever was going to come out of my mouth was not matching my heart. I was going to say one thing, but I was going to do another and here Gideon has stepped out and he has said one thing, the Lord is king, but his heart does not resonate with this. You get it? He's set to do something else. He turned down the kingship to only then act like a king. Verse 29, Jerobel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. 
So he starts having all of these children with multiple wives who behave like this, kings. And then he has a son and he names him Abimelech. Wow, we're going to study more about him in the next chapter. And we're going to see the fruits of this, this heart and this action. But do you know what the name Abimelech means? It means my father is king. So he would not come out and say he's king, but he would name his son my father. My daddy is king. You see, when we take, our, when we take the credit for our success, it breeds a nature of unruliness. So may we not miss this. The golden earrings, they bring them together. They melt them down. It is unruly. But we shouldn't be so shocked at this, of this repetitive nature, because rebellion against God is nothing new. It is that repetitive nature from of old. That's our rebellion. It's a repetitive nature of old. Sometimes we surprise ourselves. We go, oh, I didn't know that I could fall into this sin, that I could do this. Why not? It's repetitive. It's from of old. We should be prepared, always making Christ our king. This is what we strive to do every day. And so this ephod was a snare to Gideon and to his family. This word snare means bait or lure. I was talking about fishing earlier. I love to go to a sporting goods store or to a bait shop and just look at all the baits. I love them. I love using a plastic worm, a Texas rig. Can I get an amen in the house? Texas rig. All right, is it just because you're from Texas? Yeah, amen. All right. But I love a Texas rig. And so I'll go and, and, and Zoom is the brand that I use. And, and just listen to all the names of Zoom uh, worms that you can buy in this store. These are plastic worms, by the way. My, my youngest son are f- is fascinated by plastic worms, okay? But listen, here it is. So am I. Listen to a name uh, of a few of them. Watermelon candy. Not to catch a big fish right there. Sweet. June bug, red bug, cherry seed, watermelon seed, watermelon seed with red flakes. Red shad, electric blue, green pumpkin, chartreuse. But not just regular chartreuse. You have pumpkin chartreuse. You have motor oil chartreuse. Mm, yeah, that'll catch them. And then you have cotton candy chartreuse tail. You have tequila sunrise. And then you have black. It's the black worm. I'll never forget one day I asked the guy, I said, what, what kind of worm would you suggest that I take? I want to catch some big fish. He said, go get you a black zoom worm. I said, no, 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 no. I want something with like some flakes in it, some color. He said, no, that's just for you. Those baits are to lure you in. You should get you a plain black worm and go fish with it. I did. Caught some fish. Amazing. What are all these lures in these stores, thousands of them, to do? They, they take men and women who love fishing, and you know what? It's more about the fishermen than it is the fish. Oh, I think that, that right there, that would work. That looks good. It's good eye candy. And yet that's what this ephod was. It was good eye candy. And yet really what it was is it was a weighted distraction upon the people. They had set their eyes on someone other or something other than their true king, the one who led them to victory. So Gideon falls for the artificial bait, or should we say superficial bait, and he is lured away from God. But when you continue to read this, here's what's confusing. God gives them peace. And here's where we have to be very careful, church, is with the peace, is when things are still. Yet we have disobeyed, but yet things are still. And we think we've gotten away with something. Well, maybe this isn't a severe sin. 
Maybe I ought to be repentant of this type of sin. Maybe it's okay if I sin here because God, God kind of understands my personal struggles. And what we're referring to is a non-repentant heart. Not when you fail and you, and you call upon the Lord. We're not talking about that, but when you are just unrepentant. Notice our and things are at peace. And that's the situation we see right here. Verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. And you could say at least they had their freedom or so they thought. Things are about to change. Instead of having outward enemies, now they're starting to battle with themselves. It's gonna become internal. And so he thought that he had defeated all the enemies, but yet there was one remaining. Care to guess who that one remaining was? Himself. Himself. You see, we think because we don't have external battles going on that there's peace and all is well, and yet we may be entertaining certain sin, not making Christ our king, and we think all is good, but yet we forgot about one, ourselves our unruly selves. And here's the end result. Ultimately, Gideon's going to die like all who live on this earth, unless Christ comes back. Verse 32, And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abyssalites. And then verse 33, As soon as Gideon died, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal beareth their God. Why do you think they turned so quickly? Because their God had become Gideon. They had put their eyes on Gideon as their savior. And we see nowhere here where Gideon repented of that. Be very careful, mom, dad, friend of becoming that God for somebody else and you love to soak up the praise you love to be glorified you love to be seen as the one who has all the answers who just has life all together be careful be cautious and in this time of what appeared to be peace there was something stirring and as soon as he dies and the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And so let me ask you this. Do you use God-given success to substitute yourself for God? And do you feel like you're getting away with it? May we look to this passage and may there be a brokenness within us if this is true to submit ourselves to Christ the King. They quickly forgot that he whittled their army of 32,000 down to 300 and they defeated an army of 135,000 plus men. And yet how easy it is for us to forget what happened at Calvary. That Christ did that so that we could live with him. Gideon had forgotten where he was when God came and found him. How quickly we can forget where we were when God came and found us. Did you know that God came and found you? 
When you read through the gospels, do you know that he came after you? That he invited you into his family? Terminology that we use as following Christ, we say, I invited Jesus Christ into my heart. I invited him to become my personal Lord and Savior. I accepted Jesus to be mine. You know what really happened? Is the Holy Spirit came and began to do an intervening in your heart. And there you did respond to something that was good, something we call the gospel. And you did repent to follow Jesus if indeed you are a follower of Christ. But who invited who? God invited us into his family. God brought us in to be with him. He accepted us. He made us his very own. If we believe this, you know what? It brings gratitude in our hearts because we have no business being a child of God, but by his grace, we can be his child. And when we understand that God came to Gideon when he was in the wine press, what what would happen if God never came to Gideon? You wanna know what would happen? He would have kept living in, in this repetitive life. All his goods would have been taken from him every year. He would have been hiding in a cave the rest of his life thinking this is life, this is life. This is what I'm here for. But no, God came to him and said, I'm gonna deliver you and you can live in my presence and you can have victory over this enemy. This enemy does not have to rule over you anymore. I will use you and I will whittle down an army. You will defeat them. No longer will you be a defeated foe. And the same thing happens to us when we look to Jesus Christ. It's not about just doing a bunch of do's and don'ts and doing everything right. It's being invited in to live in the light as he is the light, to walk in it. It is the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. That means over and beyond. That means more than we ever thought at the moment when we repented to follow Christ, it's even more. And when we stop and go, God, you've given me so much, he's going, but I have so much more to give you. Don't say thus far you can come, God, no further. Let me still be your king day after day after day. I have over and beyond for you. Abundant life is found in Jesus. Do you have this abundant life in Christ? And can you enjoy the success that Christ has accomplished on your behalf? And there is seated Christ the King on the throne of your heart. Is this you? Or have you taken the good things that God has given you and you said, thus far, God, you can come. I've got it from this point. You know, the good news is you can repent of that right now and you can live in the light of Jesus Christ. And Christian, you can repent of that right now and you can continue walking in the joy of your salvation right now, right now. This is the good news that we have when we look back on Jesus. He is a good judge. He is a good savior. He saves us of our sins so that we don't have to go hiding in shame, but so that we can walk in victory and great joy. Is he your king? Are you excited that he is your king? Will you go forth in victory this week because Christ is your king. Will you look to the word? And I asked you that on purpose, and here it is. Would you really take this with you? Would you really take this? If this is the only thing that you could have, would you really hold this right here? Do you really cherish it that much? This being the word of God. And I'll leave you with this final encouragement. Ladies, men, If you open up this word and you feel like you are not worthy to read 
what's on these pages. If you open up this word and you say, you know what, I can't understand this. And then you just go to your Jesus calling book and open it up and start reading because you say, I can understand that. Let me be real careful to say that devotionals can be good, but they can also be devastating. If that's all you ever get day after day after day. Open up the word, read the word. If you're struggling to even love the word, if you could be so honest before God and say, I want you to be my king and I want to live by your word. I want this to sustain me. And you're struggling with this. I I understand. Our pastors on this staff, we understand. We're not going to look at you like you're some crazy person going, oh, you don't love the Bible. You can't be here. No, we understand that there are many days we don't love the Bible. We don't love God's word. And so we interject our lives with something else. If this is your struggle, here's the good news. You can call upon the Lord and say, help me, teach me, guide me in your word day after day. And may it just start with today. If this is something that you really would like help with and that we could help you with and encourage you with, would you write on the connection card today? Whether you've been a member here for 30 years or whether you just started coming today, and you're saying, I really need help in, in reading the scriptures. Would you first and foremost pray for me? And then I would like to follow up. I, I would like somebody to follow up with me and help me in the reading of the scriptures. Would you write that down? Would you be so bold just to write that down today and say, yes, God, I want to understand your word. We are here because if we miss this, we miss it all. May Christ be our king. May we trust in his word. Let's continue to worship. Pray with me. Father, thank you for our time today. May we not be a people who just settle for saying one thing but go about doing another. May we be honest that it is awfully difficult to submit to Christ the King because of our old nature. Father, fill us with the reality of your truth that we can be more than conquerors. And that as we look to your word, we can be filled with such hope in direction, setting our sights on the one true king. And we can live an abundant life with purpose and for your glory. God works so mightily among us that this would be true about us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.